Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Well, my name is Dave, and uh, I'm, I serve as the lead pastor here at Harvest Community Church, and I'm really delighted to have all of you here. We really feel privileged to play the role of host. I think it's just because we have a big room. That's what the only qualification we had for being host today. And thank you for making that extra effort, those of, uh, of you who are from Emmanuel and Willow and Hope, for coming to a, a building that you're not familiar with and to a church you don't know to sit and worship the one God who binds all of us together. And as Pastor John said in the beginning of our time together, your pastors have been meeting for about a little over a year And we've really enjoyed the friendship and the deep fellowship we've experienced. I think what's happened in the last 14 months is that we as pastors have, together under God's guidance, laid a greater hold of this sense of God's kingdom among us. And that's an important thing, because if we don't have that, then each church becomes something other than what God had envisioned and intended when he called us together. Now, this phrase, kingdom of God, It's one of those phrases that gets thrown around a lot in the church, isn't it? I mean, you hear that phrase everywhere. Uh, By the way, if you guys have the slides back there, you can just go ahead and turn it on. You you know, the uh, it's a it's a phrase that gets thrown around all the time. But probably many of the people who hear it and use it are not fully aware of the depth and the richness of what that is. Now, this thing called the theology of God's kingdom is a very robust thing, and it's probably more than I could do justice to in forty minutes both because of time and because of my brain. But I would say this, there are some things which I can say for sure are true of God's kingdom. And that's what I'd like to explore together with you this morning from a couple verses in Scripture that I think if you've set foot in a church ever before in your life, you've probably heard these words. They come out of Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, and it's a small snippet of something we know as the Lord's Prayer. It's a time when Jesus, in response to the, the disciples' questions, well, how are we supposed to pray? How do you talk to an infinite God when there's so much to be said and our minds and hearts are so filled with the jumbled mess of contorted feelings and desires? How do we pray to God? And this is the answer of Jesus to his people. Here's how you should pray. And he said this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. A little kid once heard me read that and said, so I guess we're all supposed to say hello to God when we first start our prayer. You understand that means it's holy and lifted up. And then it says, listen to this, the very first real line of this beyond the greeting to God is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that, couple, that couple sentences right there really holds a very precious and powerful insight. I think it holds an insight that I believe in my heart can unlock the Christian experience for a lot of people who've been in church for a very long time and are starting to actually wonder, I'm not sure what all this is about. It's been my real sad uh, duty to walk with some people who have come to that moment of realization and just decided, really, I don't know why I keep coming to church. I don't even really know why I keep saying I'm a Christian because over time they've lost sight of something very critical to the Christian experience. And so I believe that what we're going to learn about this morning holds the key that will keep you walking with Christ for many, many years. 
Now, I, there are a million things to be said about God's kingdom, but a couple things I want to say, say for sure are, one, God's kingdom, it's not a place. It's not like the United Kingdom. Any of you ever been there, the UK? It's a pretty cool place. It's not like that. It's not some organization or some faraway country. It is actually a situation or a state of affairs. The kingdom of God is people, but beyond just being people, it is a situation in which God himself, seated on the throne, is the undisputed king of everything. Now, I'm aware that I'm addressing an American congregation, and the whole idea of king is completely lost on us. In fact, about 250 years ago, we made sure that king would have no place in the American way of doing life. The idea of unquestioned, absolute human authority freaks us out, doesn't it? That's what we resent. That's what we don't ever want to see. If any of you watched the TV show Jericho, it gave us a glimpse of what, what, how scary it would be if on American soil, someone tried to usurp that level of power. And so I'm, I'm addressing people who live as free people under a republic over which there will never be a king, God willing, right? And so this idea of one being who can actually say heads will roll and he can take from you your wife, your children, your property, your very life just because he wants to. Well, that's something we don't really internalize ever. And yet when we open the pages of our Bibles, there is that language everywhere. Christ is king. He is king of kings. And this thing we call the body of Christ, it exists in a context called the kingdom of God. And so how do we as Americans reconcile this strange notion that we, who don't even very much like our presidents, have to acknowledge a king in our lives? I think that alone explains why American Christianity looks the way it so often does. A Christianity lived out on our terms as though God himself is an elected official and better play nice with us. Don't be too demanding. Don't overtax us. Don't ask for too much. Don't cost me too much, God. This is still my life, my nation, my world, and you are a part of it. Now, that probably doesn't speak to anyone here because we have such amazing churches. But, you know, all them other people out there, I think that's how they live, right? Truth is, that's how we live, too. Because king is so foreign an idea, even God as king will require a lifetime of meditation, struggle, and adaptation for that to become anything close to real in our lives. And I want, to, I want to issue that as a serious challenge to all of you this morning. Don't sit here and think because the term is familiar that you've got this kingdom thing down. I have been a Christian since 1984 and it's still freaking me out that God wants to be my king. And I'm sure that's the experience for many of you. Let's just acknowledge together this morning that there's more to be understood about this than we presently hold in our hearts and our minds. Amen? God is a king over everything, the king over all. And that is a situation before it's ever a group of people or an organization, isn't it? Now, because the kingdom of God is a situation and not a place, it is then by definition also invisible. That means you can't point on a compass to where the kingdom of God is. And because it's an invisible kingdom, that's going to throw us off a little bit. Because how do we speak to other people about a kingdom you can't even see? Well, the truth, of course, and the punchline, I guess, of this whole sermon is that it may be invisible in some sense, but that doesn't mean it's a kingdom that is completely unseen. 
I believe that it is the calling of the church and of all those who follow Christ to work in their lives and trust and submit to God in such a way that an invisible kingdom becomes visible to the world. Do you see that? I wonder if you guys remember an experiment. We did it in my school in physics class in high school. Does this picture look familiar to you? Our teacher made us get out pieces of paper. He gave us two, two magnets, you know, north and south on each end. He said, put the opposite poles together, separated by about an inch. What do you see? So we see two pieces of metal on a piece of paper. Whoop-dee-doo, you need to get out more. He said, well, no, that's all you see. But there's something remarkable happening there. there there's something called the magnetic field that now exists between those two chunks of metal. And it is powerful and strong and has order and predictable properties Do you see it? And we said, no. Then, of course, he distributed iron filings, right? And we sprinkled them all over the paper. And to our amazement, we sprinkled randomly, but they coalesced into these bands. And we began to see this invisible thing called the magnetic field. It was always there, as real as anything I can touch. But it needed something else to become visible. I believe that is the nature of the way God manifests himself in this world. How many of you can draw a picture of God? Yes, I know all the pictures of Jesus look like a Western European hairdresser. You know, the, what Mark Driscoll says is it's hard to worship a guy I could beat up, right? I mean, you know, this sort of effeminate looking guy. That's the picture we hold because it comforts us. But the truth is you don't have any clue what God looks like. You can't draw a picture of him. You can't picture George Burns with a cigar talking to... If, just dating myself and some of you, we know that God and George Burns were associated for a decade, right? Is that what you picture? Do you know how an invisible God will be seen by a world all around us? I believe we are God's iron filings. And I believe the church of Jesus Christ is called by God and commissioned to make an invisible kingdom and an invisible king very real and present and detectable in this world. Well, that sounds great in theory. Here's this dude telling us that somehow we are God's iron filings. It sounds great in a sermon illustration, but unless you're going to become a piece of particulate metal when you leave this room, what on earth does that mean practically? And I want to unpack that just a little bit. I don't have a whole lot of time, so fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to try to talk a little slower than my hyper heart wants to and stay with me. What does it mean to make an invisible kingdom visible. Well, here's one thing I think is given to us by the text. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the first implication I draw from that, and by the way, just so you'll know, it's the first of only two. It's not a three-point message, so it's important. People need to know that kind of stuff. We make the invisible kingdom visible by putting Christ above ourselves. Did you catch the unmistakable language of priority in the way Jesus taught us to pray? He said, your kingdom, referring to God, not mine, not our, but your kingdom come, your will be done. That is the beginning of making an invisible kingdom visible, is that somehow the king must first take priority in our own conscience, in our own consciousness, in our own reality. From the earliest age, it is human nature to be very self-interested and self-centered, isn't it? Let me see a show of hands. How many of you guys have kids? 
Right, so you, I don't even need, you can just shut down for about five minutes because I don't need to convince you of anything. All you have to do is watch kids, even at the age of one and a half or so, play with each other and you see that there's such a thing as original sin, right? I mean, it's proof. There's nothing more self-centered than a child. And just because they become teenagers doesn't mean they become any less. The irony is, the older they get, the more monstrously self-absorbed and self-centered and self-interested human beings become. Until maybe at some crisis point when they turn 30, someone smacks them upside the head and they get it. I am not the center of the universe. It is human nature to be grotesquely self-interested. And if no one ever intervened, we would walk around on a planet full of people whose heads are the size of Goodyear blimps and there's no room for anyone else in this world. Now, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. And since I'm the best person in this room, the rest of you are in big trouble. (laughs) Do you get what I'm talking about? We are in serious trouble without God because there's no way six and a half billion of us are going to share this little ball floating around in space without destroying it utterly if we don't get a handle on this natural inclination towards self-absorption and self-centeredness. And the interesting thing is whenever you see a command of God, it is aimed directly at some natural disposition which does not honor God, but which we will probably do anyway. That's the nature of a command. Commands are aimed at the very things we won't naturally want to do. And so God says, I know what your nature is. You want so badly to build your own kingdom. And so you must learn to pray against that. No, God, not my kingdom or our kingdom, but your kingdom come. If you hit the next slide, the first distortion of that nature is really this. Click it one more time. We, we can often get trapped in this, my kingdom come Thinking. Isn't that true? My kingdom come. The way you understand this is every decision, every evaluation, every opinion is driven by and birthed out of how it affects and rubs me. In other words, it's a way of saying, whether I like to admit it or not, I'm the sun at the center of my own solar system, and all of you are just asteroids floating around in my universe. Some of you are annoying asteroids, and I want to get a triangular spaceship and blow you out of the sky, right? And that's the way it is. Another way I've often said at our church is it's as if we think that life is the motion picture of me, and everyone else is a second supporting actor or actress. You know why we think that? Because in every scene, there I am. I must be the star of this film, because everywhere I go, it's all about me. You want to see this put into flesh and blood? Look at a teenager. Not all teenagers, but many teenagers, because I remember this. Every opinion I had began with, well, I don't like this. I think you're not treating me well. I think, I think, I think. And I had absolutely no view of the world around me. Now, the teens in this room are exceptional, I'm sure. They've got their heads on straight. They honor their mother and father. They're good citizens. They volunteer. But many people... They're so stuck in this my kingdom come mentality. How are you going to get out of that? Well, Jesus says, pray this, that not my will, but yours be done. Your kingdom gets the priority, God. It's you reigning over my life. And I wrestled this week with, I need an illustration that fleshes this out, some challenge. And I thought far and wide, and I finally landed on this. Let's just begin with the next decision you're going to make in your life. 
Okay, so check it out. Are you going to come to the picnic this afternoon? You notice the picnic table is empty. I could appeal to you on a lot of different bases, right? Here's one way I could appeal to you. We have ordered 600 pieces of chicken. Is it right before the living God that all those chickens should have given their lives in vain? I mean, that's, that's massacre. It's genocide of chickens. And so I ask you in the name of not wasting food to come and eat some of that chicken. That's a pretty stupid way to get people to come. But this may seem to you a mighty trivial question in the grand scheme of things. You're saying to yourself, what a fool. I've got much bigger fish to fry than whether I'm going to go to a stupid picnic this afternoon or not. But you know, it's not that trivial a decision. Because even in this, I know what's going on in our hearts because it's also going on in my heart. Every Sunday, you know, we call it the Sabbath, even though there's very little rest for most people, especially for us pros, right? Like, Sunday's not always the most restful day. And so there's this desperate drive in the flesh. I'd, I'd rather just go home, open a Coke Zero or some other strong beverage, and just relax in front of the TV and chill. I want to be with my kids. I want to have my kids on my lap playing. And I just want to be with my own folks and just rest. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just this. You get freaked out by cocktail parties and social gatherings, and especially places where you don't know anyone. And so the idea of sitting in some field in a park, holding a burger in one hand and just going, I don't know anyone here, that freaks you out a little bit. Or maybe it's just that you're too sexy for your shirt. And, you know, you got better things to do than hang out in Victoria Park with a bunch of people that you don't know. Or maybe it's this. Bro, I got enough friends. I don't need to make any more. I'm right up to here in the, in the friend quota. And I just, what's the point of saying hi to these people? It's not like I'm going to see them next week or next month. What is the point? Now, those are all the rationalizations that will keep you from making an important decision to come. And it's not because I want you at the picnic so much. But even in this small thing, it is one of a dozen daily battles you will fight every day to decide this issue. Is it my kingdom or is it your kingdom, God, that will reign in my life? And something as trivial as this, will you have your way or will I just, like I always do, do what I'm going to do anyway? Here's another way to look at the question. Do you have power, God, to make me do anything that I really don't feel like doing? Now, here's, the, here's the, the heart of this issue. If in the trivial things that, that issue doesn't get decided in God's favor, how on earth is it going to happen in the big things? When you get pregnant, and to have that baby will upheave and, and devastate your future plan in life. And yes, you're a Christ follower, and yes, technically you're in the pro-life camp and all that, but how will you decide to keep that baby rather than running off in the night, getting that abortion, shaming, being ashamed and, and pain for the rest of your life and knowing you couldn't have chosen otherwise because all your life in every trivial decision, it was always my kingdom, not yours. And so when the big things come onto the skillet, we have no capacity to fry them the right way. When you're fighting with your spouse and that attractive young person is laughing at every joke at work and is telling you you're, you have really nicely defined abdominal muscles and that sort of thing and you're flattered and, you know, you know some of us have gone past the six-pack, we've graduated to the keg. 
The point is that flattery can be devastating. How will you resist the temptations of adultery if in every little daily decision it has not been up to that point, not my kingdom, your kingdom come? Do you see the importance of even these small things? Here's another distortion that we, we just have to address. It's our kingdom come. So let's say we're very magnanimous people. I'm not that self-centered, but you mess with my tribe, you've done the wrong thing. There's another distortion to the kingdom idea, and that is our kingdom come. My tribe, my people, my ethnicity, my nationality, my church, my denomination, my blah, 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 whatever, whatever little circle or fence you like to choose to corral those people you consider your people. That's a serious distortion that works against the kingdom of God, and it is so natural for us. Because we seek the refuge of groups to identify and give structure to ourselves. I don't know who I am sometimes if I'm stripped of all the groups to which I belong. When someone asks you, who are you? I've had a a psychiatrist once do this to me. I I, I didn't go to a shrink necessarily, but that's what happened. I did. Because I went to this leadership thing and they said, the first thing you're going to do is spend an hour with a psychiatrist. And we're going to just have him interview you. That's a nice way of saying he's going to shrink my head. And boy, it was the most eye-opening thing. And here's what this guy starts with. Who are you, Dave? Uh, let's see, I, I'm the senior pastor of Harvest Community Church. All right, not interested. Who are you, Dave? I don't know. I'm a Christian. Okay, cool, but not interested. Who are you, Dave? I don't I'm a Korean-American. And he just kept stripping away every layer of the onion I tried to put out. And I started freaking out a little bit because I realized when you take all my patches off the shirt... That's just a blue shirt. <laughs> well, a black one, you know, but who on earth am I? It's so important we cling to these groups because without them, some of us are just floating on the ocean of life with no sense of identity. And that's an okay thing that we have that. But here's the danger of that. Is you could so over-identify with your group that it becomes the entire world to you. And because of it, it diminishes your capacity to see the beauty of a broader world and a broader kingdom concern of God. You know, wouldn't it be weird if you walked into a Walmart and you were in market for a blender and you walked in and they were fresh out at the Rolling Meadows Walmart or whatever. So you said, hey, look, do you think that the Schaumburg store or the Streamwood store has any of these in stock? Now, how surprised would you be if the clerk said, How the heck should I know? We have nothing to do with those people. But aren't they also Walmart? Yeah, but they're a whole different thing. We don't care about them. We don't know what they stock. Now, that would be offensive and surprising. And you say, let me talk to the manager. Because it's preposterous. And we say words like, ridiculous. It's ridiculous that I want a blender and the store down the street might have it. You guys fly the same name in neon over your store or or in electric lights. What does it mean that they're Walmart and you're Walmart if you have no connection between you? That would be truly ridiculous. Wouldn't it be amazing, some of the folks at our church are in law enforcement, if you committed a crime in one township and then you scurried over to the next one and they had no way of tracking you down? Because the police departments and governments don't share any information. That would be tremendously frustrating, wouldn't it? Now, we would call all those scenarios serious dysfunction. 
But you go to any community. Do you realize in Hoffman Estates alone there are dozens of churches? Dozens. What do you know about any of those other dozens of churches, really? Until we began praying 14 months ago, I knew absolutely zero (laughs) about most of them. Now I'm getting to know quite a lot about three others. And that's a very good thing. How do we describe to the watching world something called the kingdom of Christ when all his outposts are radically disconnected from one another? When we don't even have any idea what it looks like to be a Christian in another ethnicity or another socioeconomic bandwidth or or of another denomination or another age group. How can we say to these people, we fly the flag and the banner of one king when each of his outposts has no idea what it's like to be with the others? And that's really why we're doing this today. Isn't it interesting that all four of our churches end with the words community church? Community church. Emmanuel, community church. Willow Creek, community church. Hope, community church. And Harvest, community church. That's interesting. And what we're doing today is living up to our name. We are saying that community is bigger than just us. And we're saying we're also a church for this broader community. And that can't be a reality. It's just rhetoric if we don't actually have some face time getting connected with one another. That's why we believe this is not just one of those drive-by events in ministry that you're used to. This is the beginning of something bigger and longer lasting than just one picnic together and one worship service. What today is about is not my kingdom come or our kingdom come, but you click that one more time. It is truly your kingdom come. Now, hold that picture up there for a second. Would you go back? And this is what, what one of the things I wanted to say is, without this kingdom idea of God bringing us together, this is what we look like. We're like churches where each church in the same community is a tile and a mosaic, but when you zoom out, there's no discernible picture. You know how stained glass is made up of lots of pieces of fractured glass, but when you zoom out, in most cases, you're supposed to see a picture. You're supposed to see Jesus walking on water or something. It would be weird if you just kept zooming out. It's just chaos, random pieces of glass all stuck together. And that's really what we look like, I think, most of the time to the world. And it's time that they began seeing among us a picture beginning to coalesce out of the ether. And it's a picture of one kingdom under one banner, under one Christ, who is firmly and surely seated on his throne. Well, let me wrap this up with the last observation here. We also make Christ's kingdom visible when it's normally invisible by doing the will of God in obedience. You see what Jesus said for us to pray? Thy thy kingdom come, Thy, I'm using that old language there, because it's how most of us memorize it. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to underscore the second part of that. Thy will be done. The way most churches are built, it's as if Jesus taught us to pray, Thy will be known. Thy will be agreed with. Thy will be passingly okay with us. Thy will be acceptable. But you know what it said? It said, Thy will be done. 
In other words, the connection between this world and God's will is action and obedience because, and only because, Christ is king. <clears throat> you know, it's a silly illustration. We flip to that next slide. I mean, how many of us would say to our kid, all right, Billy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to skip school today and just sleep till noon. And after that, when you wake up, I want you to have a couple ice cream sundaes for lunch. And then I want you to spend the most of the afternoon watching SpongeBob on TV and playing your DS. And to wrap all that up, I'm going to give you 20 bucks. Go to the drugstore, buy whatever candy you like, and then invite a friend over and just stay up as late as you feel like, making as much noise as you'd like. And if you don't do it, you're going to be grounded. Now, you know why that's such a stupid illustration? <clears throat> Even as I'm writing it, I felt stupid. Because no one would do that. Because you don't command what a kid in his wildest fantasies would just do anyway. At the heart of this thing called obedience is doing under authority what we would otherwise not do on our own. You don't really know that obedience is obedience until that authority trumps your own desires to do exactly otherwise. A great example in my life are these strange white rectangles with numbers printed on them all over the roads, suggesting the top speed at which I should drive my vehicle. I hate those signs because they always undershoot what I think is reasonable. Especially on Bodhi. Have you noticed if you drive not 20, if you drive 28 miles an hour on Bodhi, you will get a ticket. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Now, if you live on Bodhi, I'm going to drive slow because I care about your kids. But I wish I could drive 90 miles an hour everywhere. It's just my, my nature. And the fact that I don't drive as fast as I want to is a living testimony to an authority that exists outside of myself. Because honestly, if I didn't care about this government and I had enough money to buy my way out of every ticket, I probably would just drive 90 miles an hour everywhere. But because there is an authority that is real to me, it hems in my behavior. And in watching me drive 55 on the highway, you are seeing that authority in a visible way. I believe that when we obey God, especially in ways that are contrary to what everything in us wants to do, what is not natural to us, we begin to see the kingship of God jump out of the invisible realm right into the visible. You know, the truth is there are so many things God calls us to do as Christians and as churches, which would be very easy just not to do. And we would choose not to do them because they are costly or inconvenient or like picnics, a little awkward. Maybe not as fun as we might think. Maybe in this economy, it seems like everywhere you look, someone's asking you for 20 bucks. Does it ever feel like that? Like every Sunday at church, there's some visiting missionary at our church. It's, it feels like every single Sunday, there's a new cause to give to and it exhausts the people, I think. And the question is, why on earth would normal, sensible, financially sound-minded people live this way? So much of the Christian life cannot be explained by human nature. In fact, church life, Christian life, the followership of Jesus is one of the most counterintuitive and strange ways to live on earth. If you think otherwise, you might want to re-examine what discipleship has meant to you. Because I believe discipleship properly lived out 
creates a life that the world around us will take notice of because it's not the way people would normally want to live. Let me ask you, why would I want to give up my Friday evening feeding homeless people? I mean, just tell me honestly. I know it's the right thing to do and all that. Let's just get past all the self-congratulations and honestly say, why would someone do it? If there was no prevailing authority or life transformation in us that acknowledged Jesus, it is not the normal way people live. The way most of us live is we see the panhandler outside the 7-Eleven and we say, you look able-bodied, dude, get a job, and we want to skirt around. Or if we catch him early enough, we might even cross the street not to be on the same side and spare ourselves that inconvenience. Now, I am, of course, addressing the lowest common denominator in this room because I'm sure that most of us walk right up to everybody we can find. You probably have a second wallet that you keep just for charitable giving. I understand that. But the human nature that, that drives our action is not normally going to move toward the beautiful life which Jesus commands of us. It is exceedingly important that we get this idea of Christ's authority down in our lives because it is when we choose to obey him that the very struggle and tension that is one, even the process of wrestling with it, reveals Jesus to the world. Because the question can be asked, why am I even wrestling with this if there were no Christ who demanded it of my heart? Why is it even bothering me? Even the struggle reveals Jesus and his kingdom to the watching world. And so it is important that we wrestle and fight those fights and land on the other side in obedience to Jesus Christ. Because every single time a Christian or a church obeys the Lord, he becomes visible out of the invisible. Do you see that? We drive past dozens of of red brick buildings with nice steeples and towers and bells, and we have no idea what's really going on in any of those buildings. Some of them might be mausoleums, and some of them might be living outposts of the kingdom of God. The difference between those two scenarios boils down to whether we acknowledge in our lives that Jesus Christ is king, and rightfully so, and it has then made a tremendous difference in the way that we order our lives. Now, this isn't just empty rhetoric. It's always a good time when I fold my notes in half. That means there's only 30 minutes left. <clears throat> Pastor's famous last words, in conclusion, right? Truly, though, in conclusion, let me say this. This isn't just empty rhetoric. It's not some crafty ploy to give meaning to what we're doing here in this place. But have you ever walked around and just observed the world for a little while and just said to yourself in this frustrated futility, everything is just so messed up. Have you ever just thought that to yourself? This world is just not how it's supposed to be. And I don't even know how to change it. The governments are so corrupt and and on and on. You You just get overwhelmed by the brokenness of everything. And have you ever just said to yourself, Wouldn't it be great if someone who knew what they were doing, who was truly good at the core, could take over and run things? That would make the world a better place. And the glory of it all is that's precisely what Jesus intends to do. He is the only one who's going to fix all of this. Do you know how many presidents I voted for that I regretted voting for later? And it's not because of what they did, but because all human leaders disappoint. They can't fix the world. 
Obama, McCain, Bush, Gore, it doesn't matter which bozo we put. I'm not, please understand. I'm just being a little overly cynical. They're not the men who are going to fix this country. And Hillary won't make a difference because it's not a woman who's going to fix the country. The point is Jesus is fixing things. He's the only one who has the means to do anything serious about it. Because the problem with the world is not the laws, it's the corruption of the human heart. And only one king, one ruler, has access to that very deep place. You can tell me that I can't murder, but I can murder you in my heart all day long. Only Jesus has the reach to transform our world. And He is the rightful King, and His kingdom is here already. Not fully, but it is here. And day by day, life by life, decision by decision, this great kingdom of God marches forward through every little thing we do to acknowledge that He reigns. And it is our, our glorious privilege to be part of the advancing kingdom of the one true righteous king. And when he reigns, imagine what our families and schools and neighborhoods and companies and communities would look like if Jesus sat on the throne. Flip to that next slide. What if we actually made less of ourselves and made much of Christ? What would that look like? What if we put the interests of others and of God above our own and made him the priority? Your kingdom come, not mine, not ours. And think about this last one. What would Hoffman Estates and Schomburg, and in fact, what would your family look like if we bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and became in obedience the very kinds of people which he has called us to be? Do you think it would make a difference? Man, it would make a difference. It would make a visible difference. And what we do together as the followers of Jesus Christ in this small corner of the United States would ripple and be felt across the world. I believe that with all my heart. And that is the invitation and challenge I give all of you in the love of Jesus Christ this morning. Learn to pray and to live. Your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on this earth just as it is in heaven. Not my kingdom, not our kingdom, but yours, O God, so that this invisible kingdom would be seen by all and Jesus would receive his glory and he would touch this world. Amen. Would you bow with me for prayer as the worship team comes back up? I think it's good and right for us to respond to a message like this. Because God doesn't simply want our agreement. I believe he's trying to draw out of each of us a deeper response in the totality of our lives. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is bored to tears by suburban Christianity that is safe and buffered and convenient. And he's more than bored. I think he's brokenhearted over it. Because in each of us is deposited the glory and power of the kingdom of God. And our lives and our churches could be so much more than what they are if that kingdom could be unleashed. This is not simply about what your church will do. But right now at this moment, in this opportunity of decision, it's about what you will do.
Now, hear me the right way. I'm not saying to you, you need to pull your, yourself up by the bootstraps and just will yourself to do better. But it begins with this. Look to the heavens and realize that the king, the one and true and only righteous king over your life is already seated on the throne and waiting for you to acknowledge him. That's where it begins. We cannot change a world and spread a kingdom if we don't first see our king. So let, let it begin there. And I'm going to invite you simply in a moment of quiet in your own way to tell Jesus that you acknowledge his kingship. And when we're done with that moment of silence, I'm going to invite the praise team to just bring us back into a place of singing to the Lord. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.